Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Welcome to the Waco History Podcast. I'm Randy Lane, great-grandson of Waco architect Roy E. Lane. Over a hundred years ago, he designed the Alico Building, Hippodrome, and other well-known landmarks. My co-host, Dr. Stephen Sloan of Baylor's Oral History Institute, is helping me learn Waco's known and unknown stories. On this episode, the 1953 Waco Tornado. This was wind, rain, massive winds, destruction. In just one afternoon, 114 people lost their lives, and downtown Waco's skyline was forever changed. She was there for 10 hours before they finally got to her, about 2.30 in the morning the next day. Eric Ames tells us how the city came together to heal after the storm. They banded together very quickly, and, and regardless of socioeconomic or racial lines, they would come together and really work to restore so many of these things that were important to the city. And now... Join us on a trip into Waco's past. Cross the Brazos and Waco, ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco, I'm safe when I reach San Antonio. All right, Stephen, welcome back to the studio. We've got another guest today. Yeah, Randy. So Eric Ames is with us. He's a man of many hats, like uh, many of our guests that we have. He is a adjunct lecturer in museum studies. He's a assistant director for marketing communications for ITS and for the libraries at Baylor University. He is a published author. He is an excellent father. <laughs> he's a good American. He, he's all those sorts of things. You forgot and, devastatingly handsome. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things Eric has done for the community in recent years is he helps lead a walk on the anniversary of the Waco tornado, May 11th every year. And so when we're talking about doing a tornado episode, I could think of no one better to bring in than Eric, who's thought about this and the way in which you look at the landscape and, and talk about the tornado. And so that's why Eric's with us today. Excellent. So I think we've been talking about doing a tornado episode since the very beginning yes. because it is so crucial to Waco's history. So when you talk to somebody about the tornado, where do you kind of start? I like to start with having people imagine they're being walked through downtown. It's one of those locations where so many people start their journey in Waco. If they're new to town or if they're visiting and just driving through, I say, okay, think about downtown, orient yourself to the Alico building, and then think about the fact that this storm came through and radically altered the built environment that you're standing in as a part of. And to think about the loss of life, to think about the destruction and just how much all of that could change in a matter of minutes and to sort of orient yourself to this one destructive force and how its effects are still felt today. I think that's where I like to start. Some people start with an anecdotal story about someone who survived or didn't survive. Other people just talk about a building that was lost. But I like to say, when you're downtown, you can see the after effects of that storm today in a random parking lot, in a memorial to a building that's long gone, just to the way that downtown is, is, is still shaped at the present. So that's where I like to start, is just to think about that built environment and how that looks. Well, can you paint a picture for us? So say someone is listening to this podcast and standing in that corridor. 
Can you kind of explain to them what they would see? I mean, let's take us back to 52. You know, what, what that, what the feel of that area would have been like and what they may have seen as they kind of stood in the, in the corridor of what we're, cause we're going to talk about a lot of loss here, but you know, we want to get a, a sense of, of in the physical environment, how that would have looked. Some of the things you'd see would still register today. You'll see the Roosevelt Hotel. You'll see the Alico. You'll see some of the businesses that have survived to this day. But what you won't see today and what you would have in 52 is a lot of wooden frame buildings, brick facade buildings that don't have any kind of internal structure to help keep them up in a sense during a storm. But there are a number of wooden buildings that date to the late 19th century. Lots of multi-story buildings, four, five, six stories, uh, even some that are as tall as 10 and more that make the downtown feel more crowded than it does now. Uh, there's an actual bustling city square. You know, there's somewhere, there's a city hall, there is a, a, a range of buildings all around it in the traditional, what we think of as a city hall or the city square layout um, that you still see in some Texas cities today. Uh, you would have seen that, you would have seen a bustling African-American business district on Bridge Street. You would have seen people coming into town to do their shopping, to do their business, everything from dry goods and groceries to clothes, jewelry, fine goods, people bustling in and out all day. You would have seen movie theaters, restaurants, places for amusement like pool halls, billiard halls, domino parlors, all kinds of things that just aren't there today. But it was very bustling. It was a hit place to be. You saw lots of neon. You saw lots of you know fine vintage 50s of automobiles driving around. It would have just been a very, a very different scene than it is today. Was there any sort of warning or did anyone know about this or think about the idea that there would possibly be a tornado that could come right through the middle of Waco? Was that even on anyone's radar? Not really. And there were a few things that reinforced this sort of laissez-faire approach that, well, things can't really be that bad. One of the most pervasive stories is that the Waco Indians had had a myth and a legend that had been passed down to right up the present day of the tornado that there had never been a big wind, a major storm in this area because where Waco was situated on the river was just down from the bluffs in Cameron Park, and that something about that location protected the city from any kind of disastrous storm. So people sort of took that as, as gospel truth. And so even the day of the storm, on the front page of the Waco Trib, there's a mention that there are storms on the way from West Texas. We don't expect a, a high danger level. And remember that there's, there's, we've always been protected. Remember the legend. And people <laughs> were talking about it even as, uh, as the storm had come closer and gone through. Obviously, that particular myth was dispelled pretty quickly after the storm hit, but no, there really wasn't. And of course, this was also in a time when uh, radar technology and anything about forecasting was a lot more primitive than it is today. The tools have stayed sort of the same, but they were really in their infancy, and we just didn't have the kind of accuracy to look at an approaching storm line and say, okay, if this has a sort of potential to generate a massive storm, we need to be on the lookout. Uh, we could tell it was coming, we could tell there was rain, something about the winds, and of course we knew about dry lines and other things, but if you're talking about early warning and just a real sense that this is really bad, it was very much a general sense that something's coming, but we're not sure how bad yet. So what time was this approximately? Approximately 4.30 is when it touches down in downtown. 4.36, if you want to be extremely precise, is what most people seem to settle on for that time. It starts off actually near the arena as part of a system of storms around 4.10, and then makes its way north-northeast toward downtown. Skirts around Hewitt, uh, moves its way up. Around 4.30 is when a radio operator in College Station, who actually has a radar set that he can look at, notices some signs on this radar that there's something bad coming with this storm. And he can see what we now call the hook echo. And if we've all watched the weather reports now, you, you know they can find them very quickly and they immediately say, this is a trouble spot. Mm -hmm. At that point, they weren't certain that that hook echo and tornado were the same 
thing. They just thought, well, this is a sign of a bad storm, but it may not be rotation. It may not be tornadic. So by 4.30, they're starting to realize, hey, this is a bad storm. The Weather Bureau out of New Orleans issues a tornado alert that sort of says, bad things are coming, but we're not going to go any further than that. Right. So it wasn't until 4.36 that it touches down in downtown that we really get a sense that, yes, there is tornadic activity in this storm front, and it is setting off significant damage. It's a pretty bustling time in a downtown Waco that's got a lot more buildings than it does today. So were these people kind of caught unawares? So I'm assuming they may have taken cover, but they may not have thought about, oh, this huge destructive force is coming through. Right. And I think that's probably what contributed to the high casualty and fatality rate. The reports that I've seen, and, and Stephen, certainly feel free to hop in, but from what I've seen and read, it was one of those storms that we've probably all seen at least once where the clouds come down, it's very dark, the winds are up, so you know it's a bad storm. Some people comment on the green sky, that it was just so, the sky was green, everything was upset in the atmosphere, and it was so threatening, and the winds were so strong and blew the rain essentially horizontally that you mm. couldn't see anything. So this wasn't like the classic Dorothy and Oz sees the funnel coming from across the plains and can get to the basement and hide. Right. Mm. This was wind, rain, massive winds, destruction. Yeah. And it happened very quickly. Yeah, oral histories talk about that fact that it came out of nowhere and there was no time to prepare. So there wasn't, I mean, we can think about technology, but even reading kind of the weather and knowing something bad's coming, they, they talk about not knowing that. Yeah. yeah. So I've been through a few close call tornadoes myself being from Oklahoma, and I feel like that's kind of common. A lot of times you can't see it because the storm around it is so chaotic and crazy, and if it kicks up a bunch of dirt and stuff, you can't tell. For me, it's always that sound, the freight train sound, and that's kind of how you know mm -hmm. this is something different than just a thunderstorm, right? Right. In the oral histories, people do try their best to describe what that sounds like. You know, you get the classic freight train sound that it just sounds like a freight train barreling down at you at a very high speed and it's very loud and rumbling. There's a roar, just a wail, just a sustained noise for a brief time. And of course, that's the scary thing about tornadoes is they're unpredictable. You know, they hop around, they move, and you can't always tell when they're going to touch down and pop up. But they're also a lot of sound and fury packed in a very short time from where you are. They'll just hit and then they move away and then you're just sort of dazed. You're mm -hmm. left to think, you know, well, what happened? What happened and what happens next? I'm from the Texas Panhandle, so I've lived through plenty of those myself. Thankfully, up there, it's so flat, you can usually see them coming <laughs> uh, somewhat. But you have to think, too, if you're in that downtown environment and there's all these buildings around you and you're just doing your business, you know it's raining, you know it's dark and it's ominous, but it may not be as apparent to you that this is as bad as it is. Right. Um, and then you also get the added complication of buildings packed together, winds are channeling through. Anybody that's mm -hmm. been in a downtown, when the wind kicks up, you feel it coming. It would make things probably more traumatic to you if you were to experience it. And they had read in the paper that day that there wasn't expected much activity in mm -hmm. Waco. I mean, the weather report was for mild weather. Mm -hmm. The general sense was, we'll get some weather. It's going to move in from West Texas. Don't expect anything dramatic. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the forecasters at the time didn't like to put the word tornado or tornado risk into forecast because it might panic people. Right. You know, today it seems like meteorologists sometimes are really excited. Oh, my God. There's a possibility of a severe storm. There may be tornadic activity, so be on the alert, which we love and we need to keep us safe. But back then, it was the opposite. It was, mm -hmm. don't say that word. It could panic people. Just say, storms might happen, but they also might not. And remember, the legend says we're all safe anyway. <laughs> so where did it first touch down, like kind of in the area? Generally in the area, uh, if you take Waco to be the area, it would have been Lorena okay. uh, around 410. The downtown area, it first touches down around 430 on the what would be the south side of downtown and then moves its way north northeast through the path of the eventual storm 
crosses the Brazos River, goes into East Waco, does significant damage there too, mostly residential buildings. Uh, there's some injuries and a, a small loss of life, and then it sort of hops over and until it dies out around Axtell. So if you think about carving a path basically from Lorena to Axtell with most of it downtown Waco, in fact, the, the concentration of damage is in a, a, an area roughly bounded by 4th, 5th, Austin, and Franklin. Okay. That's where the highest amount of damage and death. Uh, 61 of the 114 deaths happened in that square. And so we think of it as the Waco tornado because that's where all the damage was, but it was a pretty large tornado with that big swath going right through there. It was. Uh, in fact, there was an observer who first saw it sort of breaking down from this line of clouds near Lorena and, and talked about it looking almost like a plow coming down out of the sky, that this was, you know, it looked like it was carving its way out of the storm front and moving toward downtown. It was actually part of a larger complex of storms that had moved in and started doing some damage in San Angelo and moved from west to east toward the Waco area, just spawning storms as it went, like we see every spring. <laughs> Dry lines move in from the west, you get the moist air from the Gulf, they collide somewhere, that turns into rain. And so the Waco tornado was part of a whole series that stretched from Texas all the way up into the Midwest by the time it was all done. Yeah, it caused some deaths up in the Midwest, I think, as well. It did. Yeah. yeah. I think 144 total from that line of storms, with 114 being the Waco deaths. So I'm going to interject some of my family lore here. We've, I've always heard, because my great-grandfather designed the Alico building, that people rushed in there when they saw the storm was coming, and that because it was able to sway with the winds and keep standing, that it may have been credited with saving people's lives. Is that something you could confirm in your studies? I have heard that story before, and I think absolutely without a, fact, without a doubt, that building was built to withstand something like that, and it did. We know that it moved. Some people say, well, it swayed 10 feet back and forth on its, on its foundation. Others say, well, it sort of twisted a certain number of degrees on its axis. What we know is it moved, and we know that it survived, and we know that there were lots of people in it at the time. Uh, we also know that that building was a sort of rallying point for recovery efforts because it was so tall, it didn't fall down, and people could point to it and say, this is a really easy spot for you to get, and then immediately get off and help with the recovery in another part of downtown. So we know it was a very well-engineered and built building, especially considering it was, you know, early 20th century building, very deep foundation, steel superstructure, and very well constructed. So we know that contributed to it surviving the storm. I would not be surprised if people did run to it because it had been advertised as a really strong, stable, well-built building. It would make sense that you would want to go and, and seek shelter there. So the numbers of people saved may be inflated because people were running there maybe after the storm to try and find their loved ones, right? I think so. And that's, I mean, Stephen runs into this all the time with, with oral histories. There's so many of these stories that I think there's a, a grain of truth to all of them. <laughs> the hard part is sussing out documented fact. Mm -hmm. And so every year I do this walk, the last three years, you know, I tell stories and say, look, we've, we've seen oral histories that record this. We've seen newspaper reports. We just heard stories from families on and on. I'm going to tell those stories and say that many of them make logical sense. If I'm in that situation and I know the Alico is well built or I know I have family downtown and I know that it's still standing, I'm going to go there <laughs> because I'm going to hope that with all of the communication lost, this is a place that people can find me. It's like a beacon. Right. No so cell phones either. No cell phones. Uh, Landlines get sheared off almost immediately. Uh, radio communication gets knocked down because of you know towers and, and various places being damaged or destroyed. So you're, you're essentially cutting off downtown from the rest of the area. And it had to have been terrifying. If you had children downtown, yeah. you know, family members, loved ones, it had to have been just absolutely terrifying. Mm -hmm. So what was the scene directly after? We're talking about being terrifying. You know, what were some of the, the buildings? And maybe when you go on your walk, you talk about the buildings and what happened to them. It runs a gamut. The 
scary thing about tornadoes, and I mentioned this earlier, is just their unpredictability. You know, they hop and skip and they'll level one building and then half a block away they, they leave it untouched. Mm-hmm. So you would have seen some buildings that sustain minor damage, awnings and windows broken, maybe a roof torn here and there, next to a building that's just a pile of, of rubble, some say up to five feet deep of brick, steel, glass, water spraying everywhere from broken pipes. Mm-hmm. There was a real fear that gas lines would rupture and cause explosions. You would have seen dazed, injured people coming out of buildings wondering what happened. Some people thought a bomb had gone off. Um, there were some explosives in the National Guard Armory building, supposedly, that, in fact, one of the guardsmen, when he found out it was a tornado and not an explosion at the armory, was was oddly relieved uh, <laughs> because he thought, okay, thank God I didn't make a mistake <laughs> and cause this. So you would have seen a lot of water spraying. You would have still, it's still raining. There's mm-hmm. still wind. It's still a, a, a storm. It would have been probably very quiet compared to the roar of the storm, but then it would have been chaotic after that with people screaming for help, uh, eventually sirens and, and rescuers coming. It would have felt honestly like a war zone, and, and several people have described it that way. Uh, they've said it, it felt like the experiences I saw in World War II, which is, is really scary to think about. We think today about being able to rely on a cell phone to call somebody for help or that the police and the feds and everybody else would just know what to do. At that time, there was no coordinated network for that sort of thing. And so in the immediate aftermath, it became look for survivors, get people treated. As the days go on, it becomes how do we keep looters and pilferers away? Because there's a lot of buildings downtown that we know have expensive goods in them and people might try. That was actually not that big of a concern as it turned out. But we're still looking for people trapped in the rubble. We're still looking at how to coordinate local response with state response with the National Guard folks who are in Hillsboro, Waco, and Temple. You're looking at trying to get family members reunited with casualties. It, it just it would have been absolute chaos. Mm-hmm. Where were the most fatalities? The most fatalities in one place were in the RT Dennis building. In fact, of the 31 people who were on duty that day, 22 of them died mm-hmm. in that one building. And that's a building that's at 4th and Franklin, directly across the street from the Alico. It's where the new memorial tornado sculptures are. So if you think about that whole block, that would have been the RT Dennis building and the old Paget building combined in that area. That was where the single highest loss of life occurred. It's also where some of the biggest stories about survivors and some of those stories that become legend, one in particular we can talk about later, kind of came from, but that was where the biggest impact was felt, which is interesting you mentioned the Alico because it's literally across the street. Mm -hmm. And this building that was engineered in the early 1900s across the street from a building around the same rough time the difference in the outcome of those two. The Dennis building was wooden interior structure, brick facade. It was not built to withstand a storm of that magnitude. Mm-hmm. Five stories tall, it almost immediately collapsed in on itself. And so th- that's why you got that quick and intense loss of life in one place. And so it was a furniture store, is that right? Furniture, dry goods, sort of like a Walmart of the time in a way. Okay. Uh, but it, it ran the gamut from baby furniture to silver and china and, and you know fine goods and furniture. Uh, it had been in Waco many years. It was a well-known place. It was actually that other locations in other cities. It, so it was a thriving concern, but it was in a building that had not been engineered to sustain that kind of hit. Also, as the, as the dentist company grows uh, in the early part of the 20th century, they just continue to add floors. Oh, it's not good. Yeah, to the same superstructure that you've got on the first and second floor. 
which is a natural urge. I mean, why not? We own the land straight up. You know, there's no there's no air rights to worry about. Let's just keep building. Um, if it'll hold the weight, let's do it. But it, eventually it does contribute to a catastrophic failure. And that's probably also why there were so many deaths because people were probably in there shopping that kind of day, about to go home, something like that. Yeah, it's, this is around 4.30 in the afternoon. So you have to think there's people who've been doing business downtown and they're probably about to head home. Uh, there's also people, if it had been another 30 minutes later, there are people from businesses and from Baylor who might be coming downtown to eat, go to a movie, kids who'd been let out of school. Some of them were told to go home, that there's storms coming, you should go home, but a bunch of them stayed downtown anyway. They got mm -hmm. out early, let's just go hang out downtown. So it could have been much worse, but I do think the fact that that building in particular had a really high concentration was because it's a big store. You could be way back in the interior of the store, not really even see what's going on outside if you've been in there a while. And then it just all sort of collapses in on itself. So yeah, I think that definitely contributes. Where else was a major point of destruction? Well, I mentioned Bridge Street earlier, and that's one that people reference quite a bit in these conversations. Um, it was a primarily African-American business area. Uh, you had the Jockey Club Barbershop was a very famous location there. You had the Mecca Drug Store. You had some businesses that had been around a long time uh, that were black owned and people knew. And that area of town was very old. One of its nicknames, I believe, was Rat Row <laughs> because the buildings were so old, many of them and in, in rough shape. But they were also from the earliest in the city. Mm -hmm. So you look at these uh, as built in 19th century standards. They've probably been kept up as well as they could. Again, they also were never meant to withstand something this strong. So you saw a pretty significant amount of damage there as well. Uh, so that's another area that people mention. And it was equally devastating as something like the Dennis Building, I think, because it was so closely related with African-American community. Uh, it would have felt particularly impactful for them. And so you you have to start to see this in terms of economic impact, but also sociological impact, emotional, psychological. Mm -hmm. It all just sort of hits at once. Yeah, imagine a street kind of coming off the suspension bridge. You're, you're coming off suspension bridge. You cross the street. That's Bridge Street there. Mm -hmm. I mean, middle class, black owned businesses, some prosperous business owners. And so it's really devastating. That whole area, because of how badly it was damaged, some tried to rebuild, some moved their businesses to other parts of town. But eventually that whole area is essentially raised either immediately following the storm or during urban renewal in the 1960s. And that led the way to give us the Hilton, the convention center, you know, that whole area there. But so much of what was the Bridge Street area around the square was just gone. So you mentioned some stories that you've heard and you tell when you're doing these walks. Can you kind of tell us some of the more popular ones? Sure. One of the more popular ones is the story of a woman named uh, Lily Maitken. And Lily actually worked in the RT Dennis building. She was in the building when the storm hit and for about 14 hours she was trapped in the rubble of this building. Mm. Her story is pretty well documented because she happened to be her rescue was in process when some reporters from Life Magazine, based out of Dallas, actually made it to Waco. So this is many hours after the storm has come and gone. Things are still chaotic. They're looking for survivors. And these reporters come down and they just start taking pictures uh, and looking for stories. And they happen to be around the R.T. Dennis building when they find Lily Maitken. She's listed as the last survivor pulled from the rubble. She had been trapped under, accounts vary, it's either a mattress or a sofa or a divan of some sort, but some piece of soft furniture had fallen on her and trapped her and kept her relatively safe. She was there for 10 hours before they finally got to her about 2.30 in the morning the next day. 
and this is all from the uh, the Life report that would come out later in the, the issue of Life magazine that came out right after the storm. The rescuers are working to get to her about 6.45 a.m. the next day, so 14 hours later, they finally get to her. Um, and I want to read this passage uh, to quote it exactly. It said, 6.45 a.m., Lily Maitken's ordeal ends, 14 hours and 8 minutes after she was trapped and able only to wiggle her feet. Gently as they could, the men who had labored through night to disentomb her carry her from wreckage to surface. Near the end of her entrapment, a worker removed her shoes, and before she was lifted out, she cautioned, don't lose them. They're old but comfortable. <laughs> they says they were brought to her later at the hospital. That Life magazine story that mentioned the rescue of Lily Maitken described the whole setting like this. By May 11th, the warm, close weather was uncomfortably routine to the people of Waco, Texas. The day before had been muggy, and the day before that, too. The big news in the morning news tribune was of a tornado in far-off Minnesota. At mid-morning, the New Orleans Weather Bureau warned there might be a few tornadoes close to home. But an Indian belief that tornadoes would never strike Waco had always held true, and no one in the city worried about the report at 1.30 p.m., the Waco weather forecaster announcing no cause for alarm. Three hours later, the skies suddenly darkened. People scurried for shelter from the hail and slashing rain, and at the edge of town, a cemetery workman looked up to see a thick black wedge forming under a low cloud. At 4.37 p.m., the black wedge in the sky struck 5th and Austin, gouged the earth for a block, and left the heart of Waco a broken coffin for scores of schoolboys, housewives, and motorists. That's some evocative words right there. It is. I mean, so people love the Lily Maitken story yeah. because it's a bright light in a pretty dark area mm -hmm. in the storm. That's one that I, I like to tell. Um, another one that's also sort of lighthearted was the manager of the Katy Park baseball field. Katy Park was downtown adjacent to the, what we now know as the Magnolia Silos, uh, very close, right on the railroad tracks. It had been there for years, and during the storm, it sustained some pretty heavy damage. Prior to the storm, the story goes that the manager of the ballpark used to complain all the time about the trains that ran back and forth next to the stadium because they were loud, they disrupted the games. They just were an eyesore. But during the storm, he realized something bad was happening and he didn't want to be caught somewhere that could crush him. So he ran and he hopped in the cab of a locomotive that was parked on a siding next to the, the stadium. He rides out the storm. He gets out. He's alive and grateful. And so he, the story is that he never complained about the trains again. <laughs> you know, the coda to that story is that they do eventually do almost half a million dollars in repairs to that stadium to try to bring it up to code and make it appealing again. Uh, the team plays another year after a late off season when they move to Longview and plays a different team, they come back. They're the Waco Pirates again. They play for a year. For whatever reason, interest has waned. It doesn't really catch up to previous records of attendance. And so in 1956, the team finally just disbands and leaves. You know, when I do these walks and we stand where that baseball stadium used to be, there's a lot of people that take this walk that had no idea there was a minor league team in Waco and that Babe mm -hmm. Ruth played here. And, you know, all these famous people came through and but there are people in this town that are passionate about Waco baseball history, and they just really know everything about that stadium. But the ending of it is just, uh, it's a sad sort of postlude to what happened during the storm. Mm -hmm. We should bring it back. Definitely a episode idea for later. Uh, it's on the app. You check out the Waco Pirates if you want to learn about the Waco Pirates. Absolutely. And that's one thing I wanted to, to plug, too, and you can leave this in or take it out. But, I mean, the Waco History app is an amazing source for some of these stories. And just the documentation is uh, is unreal. I reference it all the time for these walks. And we'll leave it in. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I love finding those stories and looking at the locations. There's just there's so much it can be hard to condense down. But that app in particular, and then there is a tornado, essentially a tornado path walk as part of that app that does a great job of distilling a lot of this down and lets people be able to walk it on their own if they don't do one of these annual tornado walks with us. Now, one of your stops, I know, along your walk is the uh, First United Methodist Church. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. So that was also in an area very close to where Katy Park is and where the silos are now uh, at Fifth and Jackson. And it's famous before 
primarily a, a photograph that was taken after the storm of its steeple, which was ripped from the building laying in the street. Uh, sustained some pretty significant damage to the roof and the steeple. That building, or that congregation rather, was already 100 years old in 1953. It had been founded in 1850. So a very old, long, deep-rooted church in Waco. So they had you know, plenty of, of reason to want to rebuild. And um, the story is that they, they did. They launched a, a fundraising campaign immediately. They said, we're going to restore, we're going to rebuild, we're going to come back. And within six months, they had restored the steeple to its former place. They had repaired the damage, and they were back up and running almost as it was before the storm. Now, I say was in that location. Eventually, it is no longer in that location. They move. It becomes the First Methodist Church, the building which is now at Cobbs, the mother church for Waco Methodists. Uh, so that building eventually was torn down, but it did serve as one of those sort of symbolic, we can rebuild, we can thrive opportunities that were there were numerous uh, in Waco. I think that's part of what helped to heal the scars as well as they could as quickly as they did. It's actually my church. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Beautiful. There are some examples of that. I think just as a city, Waco impressed the state and the nation, uh, quite frankly, with in a place where there was a lack of a blueprint for what to do, essentially. They banded together very quickly, and, and regardless of socioeconomic or racial lines, they would come together and really work to restore so many of these things that were important to the city. They knew some things were lost forever, uh, lives most importantly, but buildings, um, other things that they couldn't really bring back. But there wasn't this sense they're just going to roll over and, and give up. Individually and collectively, I think they tried really hard to bring back downtown and the parts that were affected as much as they could. The man who was mayor of Waco at the time was Ralph Wolf. He had been a coach of the Baylor men's basketball team. He had actually been on the bus during the Immortal 10 bus crash in 1927. He got really high praise for the way he handled the aftermath of the storm. Legally, he was empowered to use the military to declare martial law in this situation if he had wanted to. Some military personnel from James Connolly Air Force Base really encouraged him not to do that. They said that's you're going to hand over all local policing to the, the military. We don't think that's the way to go. And he listened to them. And he said, okay, well, we're going to work through the National Guard. We're going to work with Connolly. We're going to work with the state, Highway Patrol. We're going to work with local police to try to organize all this without going down that road. And so they didn't, and things worked out well. The Trib actually wrote a really nice little story about him in the aftermath of the storm. And it's quoted in a story by Randy Fiedler from Baylor Media Communications back in 2003. It said, it's time to bow deeply and sincerely to Mayor Ralph Wolf." Among all those who helped shoulder the unthinkable burdens of the Waco tornado aftermath, he carried the biggest load. He took his rightful place at the head of the disaster work with extra energy and zeal from his own rugged personality. It was a most fortunate meeting of man and destiny. That's good newspaper. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what does Waco look like in the, the days, months, years afterwards and trying to kind of come back from all that? It's one of those sort of fits and starts or, you know, intense activity and then sort of a pause. You have to do the immediate repair and, and recovery efforts, which involve, of course, uh, search and rescue for victims and, and the injured. One of the first things you have to do is try to get some of the rubble off the streets and get it out of downtown. And that was done. At first, they just took stuff to the city landfill, the city dump. And then there were reports that people were going to the dump and starting to try to loot the rubble from the storm because word had gotten around that if you found some of the rubble from like the Dennis building where there was silver and china and other things that were worth money, you might be able to find some you know, treasures to bring home. Hmm. So the National Guard figured that out pretty quickly, posted some guards at the dump, and that put the stop to that. But it also became obvious that that was very time-consuming, resource-consuming. They needed to get rubble deposited somewhere closer to downtown, and they needed to do it fast. 
So they started putting them in landfill sites near the river around Colcord in areas like one of the water treatment plants is today. It became sort of an infill area. There are other locations up and down the river that I've read and heard where they took some of this rubble. That's one of the most predominant ones. So they're having to get all of this stuff scraped up off the street. They're trying to patch, you know, any gas lines that might have ruptured. They're trying to get electricity back up and poles out of the way. And they just really need to get downtown clear of rubble as fast as they can. One of my favorite quotes about this comes from Roger Conger, who you guys, I'm sure, are aware mm-hmm. was the mayor of Waco, who was you know, sort of the unofficial historian of Waco for many years and is still one of those people we go back to you know, Roger's memories and his activities saving Waco history. But in his oral history, uh, he actually has a great quote. He said, Lord, that'll be a site for archaeologists a thousand or two thousand years from now, (laughs) because all the wreckage from the R.T. Dennis Company, which had all that silverware, all that expensive crystal in China, all broken and dumped by the river, it'll be a treasure trove. (laughs) So I tell that story on the walk and I think to myself, what will that be like? You know, Mm. many years in the future when we're not talking about this or, you know, it's a totally different landscape and some archaeologist comes and starts digging for old Waco Mm. artifacts on the river and they're like, 20th century China? (laughs) Where did this come from? Why is all this glassware here? (laughs) Uh, It'll be a very interesting find, I'm sure. So when I first got to town, I was doing some work for somebody who owns uh, the building that's now the Cultivate 712 place there in Austin and they had torn all the coverings off the walls to have exposed brick because that's kind of cool and popular now right oh yeah and there's all these bricks of different sizes stacked together like Tetris and some of the bricks are upside down so like the writing on them is upside down and I said so what's what's going on with this is kind of an interesting wall he thought that maybe they had just taken debris from the road when they were kind of rebuilding these parts of downtown and just kind of put them back together and said, this will this will make a fine wall. And that still is there. I don't know if that's true, but uh, I mean, it seems pretty likely with how it looks. So it would make sense to me. I mean, <laughs> why, why waste the brick, right? I mean, let's be thrifty. That's interesting. I had not heard that. There are lots of stories about people who would, you know, they'd find some kind of small piece of something in the street and they would keep it as a keepsake or a memorial, you know, to what happened that day. We all try to do that. People mm-hmm. hold on to newspapers from 9-11. They hold on to the newspapers from when President Kennedy was assassinated. All these things that they try to hold on to and say, this is my connection to this event. And so we'll see people that would find shot glasses from the amicable company that were somehow survived and wound up in the street. Lots of people have held on to the newspapers. Um, people will hold on to retrospectives that people write later and say, oh, yes, my grandmother was in this storm and this is our thing that we've passed down. If you could find something from the dentist company as a, you know, a, an artifact and say, this is something that I bought at the dentist company. That building was destroyed in the tornado. This is my connection. Mm-hmm. And you see a lot of people working to make those connections, I think, because until you had the Branch Davidian siege, until you had a few other more recent stories, that tornado was the Waco News high point, if you will, in the national conscience. This is where we know Waco is on the map. It's 1953 and that tornado. Yeah, so the Dennis Company had no insurance, Oh, Randy. So there is, even though it was a very successful business, there is no more Dennis Company after the, the tornado. The other thing, when you think about finding things, uh, Dr. Packard, of course, told me the story of the sliver of radium. Do you know that story? I uh, do know. Yeah, yes. yeah. Can you tell that story? That's a great story. And in fact, Randy Fiedler had written that up really well. And I wanted to kind of quote from some of the things that he wrote because he does he does it as well as anybody could. So the story is that when the Paget building collapsed, there was a doctor's office in that building. Uh, his name was Ernest Johnson. And he was using radium to treat cancer of the throat and nose. So this is still a pretty early treatment method. And that building was destroyed in the tornado. They knew that there was radium lost in the rubble. 
And so the story is that they asked three physics professors from Baylor, that was Bob Packard, Herbert Schwetman, and Arthur Smith, to bring a Geiger counter down to the rubble to try to find this because they were afraid that this radium just laying loose in this rubble was going to be a radiation hazard. So Packard said it was about the length of a pencil and about as big around as a coat hanger wire. So think about that for a minute. This is a literal needle in a haystack kind of search. Uh, mm-hmm. Although at this point it's a, a radioactive needle in a pile of rubble up to eight feet deep. So uh, to quote from, from Randy's story, Packard said the doctor had a patient in the chair and was treating them. When the tornado hit, the building collapsed and they were buried under the rubble. The doctor was injured and rushed to Providence Hospital. When he regained consciousness, he began to murmur, the radium needle, where is the needle, Packard said. They called Baylor knowing our physics department taught atomic physics and would have a Geiger counter. We got the counter and went to where the building had been, and it was just a deep basement. At one end where the doctor's office had been was a small pile of dust and debris, which had filtered through the shovels. Before we could even climb down, the needle on the Geiger counter went off the dial. I walked over to the pile, picked up a piece of string, and the radium was on the other end. Fortunately, we weren't down there long enough to be exposed to a lot of radiation. But that's a very <laughs> blasé attitude for Dr. Packard. You know? And we didn't hold it for very long, so thankfully it Probably was okay. Probably okay. Probably fine, yeah. <laughs> Anybody find a radium sliver? Yeah. Let me know. The other thing I think of with regard to the aftermath, and I thought of this with the West explosion, which at some point we'll, of course, talk about. That's that's recent events. but And the agony for that community of the series of funerals that were held after the event. And just... Just what the community must have gone through with this tremendous loss of life as every day was a series of funerals, you know, or memorials for a number of weeks. Yeah, and I think that the double agony of that is that because you were lost in a mass casualty episode, you lose some of your individuality in that. Yeah, Families can try to say, well, this was my husband, this was my aunt, my cousin, and that can be successful to a certain extent, but when you're one of 114... Yeah. It can be hard to stand out in a way, and it yeah. just lets another tornado victim was buried today. One of the things that was mentioned in uh, J.B. Smith's really excellent article from 2003, the 50th anniversary of the storm, was that for four days in Waco after the storm, there were no natural deaths in the city. So that actually was a help to the undertakers, the, mm-hmm. the, the funeral homes, the, the hospitals, that they didn't have to deal with additional deaths. They could concentrate on this mass casualty event. But no, I mean, you're right. It would be incredibly hard to know that not only had you lost someone, but you were going to have to sort of wait in line in a lot of ways to to get the kind of after-death care that you wanted to get for your family member. While you're also still trying to decide, okay, well, do I have damage at my home? Is my business intact? Do I have somewhere to work after this? Do I even, you know, try to venture downtown? What if I need something that I had to buy from downtown and now I can't get it? it would have been extremely difficult. When is downtown kind of back up and running again? When are people doing business? When are the streets clear? To an extent, it's not too terribly long after the storm. Within a few weeks, most of the significant traffic impediments seem to have been cleared away. They had a pretty good sense of, you know, this building is safe, this building is not. They would have started to make a plan for bringing, you know, everything back online that needed to be, restoring power, bringing phone lines back in. Within a few weeks, you probably could have come downtown and done some business, but it's not going to be until years later. In fact, even into the the late 60s before most of the very prominent visible scars are taken care of. And that was usually a a, a part of the urban renewal process. Uh, You know, we still have spaces where maybe we're holding on and thinking, okay, maybe this can recover on its own, or this was just slightly damaged and we patched it up and we're waiting, but it's not really happening like we want it to. So we're going to go ahead and just say as part of urban renewal, we're going to clean out 
what's left. And you guys, I'm sure, are well aware that the Urban Renewal Project itself is a, is a whole huge story, controversial in its own way. We're going to do another episode on that. Okay. Excellent. Very much look forward to that. Can, can we safely <clears throat> say that as we think about the downtown landscape now, everywhere that we see a parking lot was probably a building? It's pretty safe. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I know that's on your walk is we think about kind of remnants and scars. I know the Dr. Pepper Museum. Can you talk a little bit about the, what you talk about on that stop? Yeah. So the Artesian Manufacturing and Bottling Company, what we now know as the Dr. Pepper Museum, built in 1906 by Milton W. Scott, a famous local architect. It's a landmark building in 1952. Uh, people know it for its history as, you know, the, the, the bottling of Dr. Pepper. And of course, Dr. Pepper was invented here at the Old Corner Drug Store in 1885. So a lot of important history tied there, but it does sustain some damage in the storm. It sort of damages the upper floors on the end of the building that's closer to downtown. After the storm, they go back and they repair it. By that point, that building is 50 years old, and so it's shown somewhere, and those yellow bricks are very distinctive. When they go and they fill in the gap, it's brick that is basically new in 1953-54 when the repairs start. And so you can go back today and look on that side of the building, and it looks like a half-moon sort of shape of a scar that very clearly shows this is where the chunk was taken out by the tornado. This is where the fill went back in with new brick. And you can see that that brick hasn't aged as much as the brick around it. Interesting. It's a very stark, it, it is as close to a scar as, as you can probably find down there. We're going we're gonna to talk in a minute about other folklore related to the tornado, which there's a lot. I mean, something as big as this for a community. And folklore is part of our history, so we need to talk about it. But one thing that people have told me is they, they intentionally put a different color brick in there to keep the idea of the the legacy of the event alive or something like that. I've heard that too. Yeah. And I I, I had I wish I'd gotten to Wilton Landing to ask him that because I'm sure I don't I don't I don't know that I've ever seen it in a legitimate source. Right. I, mean, I think it's part of the folklore kind of surrounding it. So. I think so too. And that's where it gets so tricky. Yeah. I mean people love to hear those stories. Mm-hmm. You know, they love to hear about, you know, the the dramatic and the well that's a, a, a fitting and impromptu memorial kind of thing. And and maybe it was. But it is really hard to put a definitive fact where someone put in an engineer's report, we're using a different color brick to show the tornado scar. Mm. You just don't see that very often. I especially think in a time of rebuilding, that wouldn't have been one of their primary concerns. Probably not. Yeah. You mentioned the West explosion. I mean, mm-hmm. they're probably not thinking, wow, we should you know, repair damage to make it look like we acknowledge that this happened here. No, they're thinking recover, yeah. rebuild, and move forward with something new so that some of those painful associations aren't as obvious. So you said folklore around this. What other folklore have you heard? Okay, so I'm, I'll say a bit of folklore, Eric, and you can kind of react to it. The path of the tornado was, this is particularly in the African-American community, the path of th- the tornado followed the path of how Jesse Washington's body was dragged in the aftermath of the lynching in 1916. Absolutely prominent legend or tale or whatever you want to tell, whatever you want to call it. I get asked that every time I do a tour, every time I do a talk. And so that was very prominent. And that popped up pretty quickly after the storm, which is sad because the storm actually forced African-American and white communities to work together to recover. In fact, I was going to mention this. There was a woman quoted in J.B. Smith's article from the Texas Extension Service who was African-American who said people just forgot about race and rolled up their sleeves. I just got there and started working. I'd never seen people work together like that. For that time period, we didn't know anything about race. 
It was too bad we had to have a tornado for that to happen. So to know that that was the case, and then very quickly after that, this this story about the the Washington lynching, and, and for those who aren't familiar, that was a, a very heinous act that happened in 1916 when a young man was accused of raping and murdering a white woman on a farm in Robinson. He was put on trial, convicted, and before anything could happen, he's dragged out of the jail and lynched. Reports say that something like 10,000 people gathered to watch this. It was a very, an extremely disturbing event in Waco history and difficult to talk about. Can you say for certain that the tornado followed that exact path? I don't know. I mean, it's obviously more lengthy. The path of the storm is much bigger, more impactful. Symbolically, it's hard to argue that, yeah, it's roughly the same area. If you're someone who looks for patterns and you look for divine retribution and you think this is God's punishment for what happened to Jesse Washington, that can be a really hard association to shake. So I can understand why that would take root Mm -hmm. and why that would maybe bring some measure of comfort or a sense of closure to people who were still dealing with just being a generation or so removed from that lynching. Because it did so much damage in the African-American community in East Waco that that seems more unlikely in my eyes, right? This is where it's hard because I, I tell that story on the walk. After the first year and someone asked, I said, okay, well, this is obviously something people want to hear because they've heard that story. And I want to be sensitive to people who look for patterns and who, who try to, to make sense out of chaos and out of things that happen that just don't really have an explanation sometimes mm-hmm. beyond just people do really terrible things to each other sometimes. But you're right. If the destruction is fairly equally impactful on African-American, white, Hispanic, anyone who lived in this area was impacted by that storm in some way, it seems odd that that would be, this is it. This is a sign that this was retribution when everyone suffered equally. Mm-hmm. But as folklore, there's there's a meaning and a, and a reason why it would have life and continue to have life within within the community. You can understand that. Absolutely. Yeah. So the other thing I'll put out there, and I, I hear this quite often, Waco was set to become Dallas or Houston or Austin, and then May 11th, 1953 happened and changed the course of Waco forever. Half true, I think. And that's a difficult one too, because especially natives, and I'm not a native, I did not grow up here. So in some senses, and I'm also quite young compared to when the storm happened. So I wasn't there and I don't have you know that perspective. So I, I, I couldn't say if the general sense in Waco on May 10th, 1953 was, yeah, we're going to be the next Dallas. After the fact, that becomes this recurring trope. And like you said, we were going to be Austin. We were going to be Houston, Dallas. We were huge. It's undeniable that we were a large city by those standards. We were on the up and coming in some ways. We had a lot of industry post-World War II. We had jobs. We had people coming back and going to Baylor from you know GI Bill benefits that had been happening for a while. There's a shortage of housing because we have so many new people coming, sort of like now. I don't know that we would have gotten there, and I don't know that I could say definitively, yes, the tornado was what stopped it. I think when you look at the trends around that time, there was already this thought that, well, Maybe downtown is kind of not where it's always going to be. We're going to start building shopping centers. We're going to build Westview Village. We're going to build places further away from this urban core because we're also suburbanizing. You know, we're building outlying communities up. We're building housing and they need stuff close to them. They don't want to go all the way downtown. So you're starting to see some of that pull back. I think that was already happening. I think the tornado definitely was a psychological impediment and maybe just a fear for a little while that, okay, we have to pause and rebuild. And when you have to pause like that, I think it definitely makes it difficult to pick that momentum back up. Mm-hmm. And so maybe someone who thought, well, let's build a, a, a manufacturing facility in Waco, saw that tornado and went, you know what, maybe not. Let's go somewhere else. Can I prove that? No. It makes sense to me. You know, we talk about the damage the tornado did. Part of this is contributed by the fact that I think Waco's heyday prior to that was really late 19th century, first decade of the 20th century. So we have this built up of all these mortar structures that are then wiped out by the tornado in 53. 
But by the time you get to 1950, I mean, we're well behind any of those other cities I mentioned in population and development. My problem with that view is it ignores all the other, pro- you know, it was just a freak event that kept Waco from progressing. I mean, there's obviously other choices in the way the community is developing and choices the city's making, the flight out to the suburbs and all those sorts of things. And so I think it ignores some systemic things in saying, well, if that tornado hadn't happened, X would have happened. Going back to something that J.B. Smith put in his Winds of Change article, it mentioned that the city was in $250,000 of debt in the days running up to that storm and that the new city manager was dealing with this. I mean, this is $250,000 is not an insignificant sum at that time. And so you're already struggling with Waco's a city at that point that's 100 years old, founded 100 years prior. There's going to be infrastructure challenges. There's going to be, you know, how do we tax things? How do we keep things building and moving and have good schools and good roads and all the things we want? You're right. I think that trend had already started to move in a direction that was, it was not going to get us to the Dallas level, no matter how much people may have wanted it to. But I don't think that one storm, that thing you can't plan for, that thing you can't stop was the thing that just stopped it in its tracks. That's it. We were on the up and up. And then all of a sudden this just dropped us off a cliff. Part of that's nostalgia. I mean, right. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all, because there's this tremendous sense of loss with it. There's a tendency to idealize maybe the things that we had before these sort of events happen. Absolutely. I mean, I even think about, you know, I was in college on 9-11-2001. I remember where I was. I know what was going on, but I wonder how much longer it'll be before I start to really talk about how I really wanted to be at that Latin class that day. It was, I was my dream in life was to be in that Latin class. And then 9-11 happened and it took it away. No, not really. But I can see how as you get further away from a painful event, you want to try to make sense of it. You want to try to think it was for some kind of a reason. And I think that's one of these themes that comes up on the walks that I've, I've given the last three years is it gives people a chance to connect to one another because we almost always have a survivor or at least a child of a survivor from the storm who can talk about how it shaped their life. And they can kind of bond around that and they can share their stories and they can heal in a sense. I mean, it's been 66 years, but that's still not that far back in the grand scheme. It still has its effects today. So yeah, I think we do, we seek meaning, we seek healing. And sometimes we, we do it in a way that isn't completely accurate, but it helps. Yeah, I was going to ask, so have you committed to do, we're too late for May 11th. Have you committed to do it next year? I'll do it every year. Ashley Thornton from Waco Walks will bring me back. Okay, so go <laughs> as you're listening, go ahead and circle that on your calendar for May 11th, mm-hmm. uh, 2020. But I was going to ask, they do several walks. Mm-hmm. Ashley's great with that. But I, I do want to ask why you think this is by far the most, I mean, the most people come to this one. Why? Why do you, And even despite bad weather conditions on Saturday, which was a little eerie, giving a... <laughs> Don't want another of, one. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, why do you think it is so well attended and people are so engaged with this? I think part of it is... Just the the phrase Waco Tornado or 1953 Waco Tornado still registers with a lot of people, natives and people who've just moved here. Like I said before, it's one of those blips on the on the national radar that people remember. So if you're not from Waco or you grew up in Texas and you kind of remember this and then you, you move to town and you're thinking, oh, I've heard about that storm. Oh, they're going to do a free public walk downtown and look at some of the sites and downtown is a great place to go visit. Let's do it. So I think part of it is just the newsworthiness of the event. Part of it is that it's free. My family and I go travel quite a bit and I always look for historical opportunities to do things. Do you accept tips? 
I would not accept tips. Would I would not accept. I tips. would accept gracious feedback. Um, <laughs> well, Randy's going to tip you after this. <laughs> <laughs> Consider it a, a thank you for letting me be on the podcast. Uh, no, I don't, and and neither does Ashley. I mean, we don't do it for money. The Waco Walks philosophy is get people out and walking around Waco because mm-hmm. there's some mm-hmm. parts of the city you just can't experience driving around in a car. When you walk the streets, and especially if you walk in neighborhoods that are older and maybe have not been maintained as well in terms of sidewalks and even the streets themselves. You start to realize, man, there's a lot of Waco that could be more walkable. It could be more urban biking and friendly if we just got down and looked at it. So that's the philosophy there. So, you know, we do it to connect people with the stories at street level. We do it, and I think it gets a big turnout because it is free. Won't deny that Baylor's name being a part of the person leading it sort of lends that credence that hopefully the person knows what they're talking about. I think there's just a number of reasons that all kind of come together in this nice, perfect storm, if you will, of an opportunity to come do it. The first year, really nasty weather had been around. I was thinking, okay, it's going to ironically storm us out. We're not going to do it. But it moved away just in time, and we had about 100 people. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. The next year, weather was a lot better, still warm. We had about 120, 130. Awesome. This is great. This year, Stephen mentioned, it's rainy. It's cold for May this last Saturday. It's right up on 10 till we start the walk at 3 o'clock. And I thought, all right, we're going to get 20 diehards. And that's awesome because we can still do a great tour. And I get there. And there's about 30 people standing around. Okay, cool. But people keep coming and coming. And the rain backs off. And the weather clears up a little bit. And then we've got 100 people again. And so I actually asked, I said, how many of you have done this walk before? About 20 people raised their hand. How many of you have done a Waco Walks walk before? About 30 more. Said so the rest of you have never done one of these walks and you've never done the tornado walk. The other roughly fifty hands go up. So we're continuing to draw people who have not done it before. I think they're probably just interested in the story, and it helps that we can point to you see that spot right there? That's where this was. See that building that was across the street from the Alico? This is where it stood. And so I think that's been a big draw. I know this has happened in a lot of cities where back 10, 20 years ago, the downtown is pretty desolate and people say, don't go there. It's scary. And then now it's kind of coming back. Do you think the tornado set back Waco more than other cities even? I think so. I think if nothing else from just a psychological standpoint, I think it's hard not to take into account the fact that there might be just a little apprehension that if, you know, you were going to go downtown what if this happened again? Now, the likelihood of that is very small. But in your mind, the back of your mind, you're thinking, hmm, if I'm downtown and something bad happened, a lot of people were hurt and injured and there was some pretty severe damage. Maybe maybe I won't go. So I think there was probably a certain amount of that. I mean, obviously, the economic ramifications of having to rebuild so much of that, hmm. many people were uninsured. Their businesses were uninsured or they were just barely making it as it was. They didn't have the ability to come back and cash flow a total rebuild and say, hey, we're back in business. So a number of them would have just said, all right, I'm going to go somewhere else or go do something different. So I think it was more impactful than some of the other cities that just sort of slowly faded away just due to the changes in economics. Or urban downtowns aren't doing well in the 50s and 60s. And mm. so the, the idea of rebuilding one okay. in the 50s and 60s with limited capital of people wanting to invest and put money down there is, is a big challenge. And they tried several different sort of schemes to bring downtown back. <laughs> Stephen laughs. I think you. I want to do one on that. Oh. I want to do one on the. We're the, touching on all the different. The Austin <laughs> yeah. Avenue walking mall. We're going to do yeah. a whole episode on that at some point. It's, and it's amazing how many yeah. of these sort of jump out from yeah. the tornado, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So you talk about the devastation and the destruction and the sad things, but you also look at how it played a role in urban renewal, which also would have had something to do with civil rights and race relations. All these things are happening together, and that's 10, 15 years after the storm. The, the, the Austin Avenue pedestrian mall uh, was a thing um, that leads to 
later in the 80s, hey, let's save the Hippodrome. You know, let's let's try to do something to downtown to make it spark and move forward, which goes to the 90s, which leads to Spice Village, which is in a building that was damaged by the storm. So many of these things you, you could trace back to that event if you wanted to. And I think it would be hard to deny that on some level it played a role as you moved forward with all of them. I think of it like, you know, everybody's got a scar from something in their life and they carry that with them but it makes them who they are and, and the tornado makes Waco who mm-hmm. we are. Absolutely. And that's, you know, on these walks too, the one of the things that sort of brings me back to the present and makes me sort of wistful is much like the World War II generation, we're going to start losing the tornado generation. I was privileged to speak at a, a class, Waco High class of 59 reunion last year. So these are people who would have been 18 in 1959. So you backtrack six years, they're around 10, 11, 12 years old. And they remember it. You know, there was, it's a lot of stories about, you know, mom putting me under the bed or, you know, daddy bringing me in from outside and I didn't want to, but I had to go in. But they remember it. It's not going to be too much longer that they won't be here. And so their kids have heard the stories. We hope they've gotten them down somewhere. We hope those people have talked to oral historians, written it down in a journal, done something, but we're losing them. And it's almost every year or so, ironically, the closer we get to the tornado anniversary every year, that there's a story in the trib about, oh, man finds 30 unpublished color slides of tornado damage in his grandfather's locker. That's going to continue to happen, but I wonder how much of that is lost because grandkids don't care and just throw everything out. Uh, So I've just been, the last two walks in particular, I've been very focused on, if you know someone who is here, talk to them and don't wait until you see them at Christmas. You're not guaranteed they're going to be here. Sit down with them, turn on your iPhone voice memo recorder, and just talk. If that's all you can do, that's more than nothing, and get those stories down. I've been telling people more about that since this podcast started, just because the quality is actually surprisingly good, and everything is a potential oral history. Mm -hmm. That's right. Good, Randy. (laughs) It is funny how, since starting with you, I think about oral history more often. This is unrelated, but my my grandmother's getting up in age, and every time I'm around her, she's like, put that phone away. I'm like, I'm just recording. Just act like it's not here, because I want to have it. (laughs) That's great, yeah. Absolutely. I, I wish more people had that thought, and... You'll catch people on these walks saying, ah, my grandma just was, you know, she was in Lorena and, and didn't really come downtown. Great. The storm started in Lorena. Yeah. Talk to her. Part of that is just people don't know or they think it's not important, but it is important. Is it all going to make it into a published oral history memoir someday? Is it all going to wind up in the Institute for Oral History? Not necessarily. But at some point, a historian's going to come along and they're going to look for those primary sources and they'll start with the places they know they're being kept, but they might get lucky. They're going to hear from someone that, oh, you know, Jim's grandmother was in that storm. You should talk to him. And look, here's all these audio files. So it's important, no matter how high quality you think you can do it yourself, do something. Mm-hmm. So I know we've missed the anniversary for this year, but if somebody wants to get involved, do some Waco walks, what's the best way to kind of get involved with that and then maybe do the one next year? The best way to find Waco walks right now is through the Facebook group. Ashley Bean Thornton, who started Waco walks four or five years ago, I think is when they formally started, keeps a very active Facebook page. And so you just go to Facebook and look for Waco walks. And every time one of them comes up, she's going to put a Facebook event together, which you can then share to your friends and family, or just say, yes, I'm interested in going, and it'll keep that in your feed so you can find it. And they do walks of lots of different focal points and ideas. There's been an East Waco walk. There's been different neighborhood walks, so Castle Heights. There's several different flavors of a downtown walk. The Tornado Walk is probably the widest ranging. So that's the best way to get involved. And they do them very frequently. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's usually at least once a month, sometimes more. And it's just kind of, you show up, it's very loose. It's not a, a, you know, a top down, you have to do this. You have to walk this way. 
bring your friends, bring your family, bring your dog. Be willing to clean up, clean up after the dog. <laughs> but just come join us and walk around where we're going to be. And you'll learn from the person leading the tour, but also people on the walk with you. I think it was the Castle Heights walk they did. People would just come out of their houses and start talking about, yeah, this house was owned by a doctor and <laughs> I've got the plans inside. Anybody want to see the blueprints? You know, that kind of stuff happens on these walks. I think that's awesome. I try and do it when we have podcasts like this where there's a location involved to kind of like picture exactly where that is and the ability that you can go there. And especially people that are coming into town visiting, you know, they can go and stand there and kind of experience it in a way for themselves. So if somebody wanted to learn more about the tornado beyond what we've said here, you know, obviously... WacoHistory.org is a great place for that, but where else would you turn people? That's a definite starting point, and I love that it is accessible on your mobile device or your laptop or your home computer or whatever you want. Uh, it's a great it's a great starting point and, and a deep resource, too. For photographs, there's no better place to start than the Texas Collection at Baylor. They have a very extensive archive of photographs and other materials related to the storm. Uh, so if you know a person involved in that, you know, uh, the papers of Roger Conger or someone that you know is involved with the storm, you can start there. Uh, that can do a really good deep dive. Of course, Roger Conger's book, I believe, touches on the tornado. You could definitely uh, speak with J.B. Smith at the Trib. He's sort of the Waco history reporting guru. He definitely dives into a lot of stories and documents things and, and has that storyteller's ability to pull out more than just rote fact. He, he really makes it feel lived in. And so you would want to you know talk to him. I do cover the tornado in both of my previous books. Nothing really divergent from what we've talked about here, but there was a chance to bring some of those things in together for the first time and pull in some new information that maybe had come to light since earlier books. So those, if you wanted to check those out. Are those on Amazon or anything? They are on Amazon. Uh, Eric Ames, A-M-E-S. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Sloan. Aside, it's super confusing on Amazon because my name, if you search for it in Waco, it pulls up one record, but there's a paperback, which is the first one, and then the hardcover, which is the new one, but it's not actually a hardcover, so it's a little confusing. There are two. <laughs> it's worth the hunt. Thank you. Yeah. You can also go to Barnes & Noble here in town and find them, and local HEBs tend to carry them as well. Excellent. Uh, I also give a shout out to previous guest, Jeff Hunt, if you're a digital type the uh, Texas Collection Flickr feed as a host of they've digitized scores of images, uh, including a lot of color images uh, from the tornado, uh, which uh, a lot of folks have seen images from the tornado, less have seen color images of the tornado, but these are original colors. Yeah, it's, it's very striking. Yeah. Uh, and, they're, and it's that deep, rich color that only comes from those slides of that era. Even if they've been in a box in a closet for 60 years, they still look amazing. And Jeff is very good at being able to tease that out from the original source. Excellent, Eric. Thanks for coming on today. I've learned a lot about the tornado. You're welcome. I appreciate very much being able to be here. And, and thanks to you guys for the work you do with this podcast. And thanks for having me. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. We'll see you next time. As he dropped the guns that she hated In the muddy Brazos below Cross the Brazos and wake home Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos 
in Waco I once played in old San Antonio Then the night came alive with gunfire He knew that at last it'd been found As the ranger's badge showed brightly El Bandito lay on the ground Carmela knew he was dying That all of her dreams were in vain As she kissed his lips for the last time She heard him whisper again Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'm safe when I reach San Antonio I'm safe when I reach San Antonio 